What's up? You're listening to the Scholarly Spark podcast. Here's your chance to finally become interested in learning and find out what you're genuinely curious about. Join me as we discover the secrets of South Asia and experience different foods, the latest technologies, immerse ourselves in a variety of phenomenal cultures, find out about interesting people we never knew existed, and learn about what no one else dared to find out. I'm Kamal Narayanan, taking you on a journey through the mysteries of South Asia, all from the convenience of your headphones. Here we go. So you would argue that any form of ideas or anything imported from anywhere else is just globalization, right? Well, in the sense of it's coming from uh, overseas. Right. It's almost all yeah. coming from somewhere overseas for most of us, mm-hmm. at least in North America, certainly. Right. You think well, like, yeah, sorry, you got Yeah, Yeah. no, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. no, no. But I would say it, it's something, yeah, it's reshaping every aspect of our lives. It's really the dominant process of our time. Mm-hmm. And even the protesters, in a sense, they're responding to this dominant process. They see how powerful it is. Wow. So do you think that technology has had a big role to play in that? What do you think the biggest, biggest cause of that? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it is technology. Absolutely. Technology has been central. Right. I mean, not just technology, obviously corporations and governments employing technology. But uh, for sure, technology, especially with your generation, it's the, it's the force that's uh, transforming everything, creating and destroying. We had a recent uh, interesting story in Canada where General Motors decided to co- close down this uh, automobile plant here. Right, right. It's been around for many years. Mm-hmm. And of course, because they now want to invest money in self-driving cars. <clears throat> and so what's happening right now is uh, technology is gl- globalization is now we're moving into a, a new period, I think, which is going to be oriented around automation. Oh, and yeah, that's all true. the mm-hmm. challenges of automation. So, for example, the prediction is in the next 20 years, anywhere from 10 to 40 percent of, of jobs in North America will be automated. Right. right. So um, that's the, the big challenge that's coming now. That's merging out of globalization, actually. Mm hmm. Yeah, you know those stores, um, the Amazon Go stores? There's no cashiers, nothing. You walk into the store, get the goods and go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. We don't need the cashier anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even but, like the, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. but there are opportunities also coming out of this. So I'll give you an example. Yeah, yeah, sure. <clears throat> the U.S. Um, Predator drone, the drone that flies over Syria. Right. So the drone doesn't need a pilot. So it's eliminated the job of a pilot. But it needs 30 people on the ground to, to man that, that flight. Wow. And it needs another 80 people on the ground to analyze the information that the oh. drone is compiling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, the U.S. in 2015 did not have enough trained people to fill all those positions. The U.S. Right, right. So there, it is producing uh, new types of jobs, jobs that depend on analytical skills, interpretive mm-hmm. skills, and so right. on. Yeah. And this is where my other uh, research project comes into play, because the the types of courses that teach analytical and interpretive skills aren't management courses or computer programming courses. They're, in fact, humanities courses. Yeah. Those are the courses that teach the best analytical and interpretive capacity. Exactly. So anyway, so there's some new jobs that are emerging as well. Mm hmm. I mean, of course, the question now is, will it be like the Industrial Revolution? Will we produce more jobs than we eliminate? And Mm -hmm. that's not completely clear. 
during the Industrial Revolution, the jobs that were replaced were manual forms of manual labor. But today we're replacing cognitive labor. So right. it's not clear whether we will actually produce more than we replace. Mm -hmm. But don't you think this transformation, it requires more people to become skilled laborers, whereas before a lot of unskilled laborers were, were, were around? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. It does require more uh, skilled labor. The thing is, what's interesting is certain forms of skilled labor are going to be replaced by computers. That's true. Yeah. That's yeah. what's interesting, right? The skilled labor tends to be more cognitive labor. Mm -hmm. That yeah. is, that's going to be replaced as well. So, for example, uh, certain tasks that doctors do will be replaced by computers in the future. Now, what's interesting is you won't replace the nurse. Forms mm -hmm. of emotional care that won't be replaced by robots for quite a long time. Right. right. So if we invest in that, you know, child care, care for the elderly, care for the sick, a lot of jobs can be created out of that because robots can't replicate those jobs. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So there's a whole other sector that could be opened up, but it of course depends on, um, depends on political will, depends on, mm -hmm. you know, uh, social mobilization. Yeah. <laughs> how would you, how would you feel about having a, a robot care for you if you were, if you were older? <laughs> <laughs> I'd uh, prefer a human being, but I mean, <laughs> what's interesting is the robot will have capacities for yeah. surgery, for diagnosis that an individual human may not have. Also robots. What's interesting with the, ro with automation is if we discover something in one part of the world, mm -hmm. Because of computer networks, every robot doctor in the world could be updated on that information. Right. So in that sense, connectivity and updatability of, of, of uh, robot networks uh, allows for possibilities in terms of health that we previously didn't have. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's, that's nice. Yeah. So as a um, professor, you, you obviously, obviously taught a bunch of students over the years. What's the most interesting thing a student said to you? What's the most interesting thing a student has said to me? Well, yeah. you know, the thing is, it's, it, <laughs> I mean, every, every, every semester, someone says something interesting to me. Okay. Recent, yeah. hmm? I mean, I think the, um, what's interesting for me now is, you see, yeah. the thing is the relationship between a teacher and a student in a way it's the relationship between the past and the present. Mm. The, uh, or, the, or maybe actually better, it might be the present and the future. Because okay. I've learned things up to a certain point. Right. But I, I have a certain detachment because I have a secure employment, a secure sense of myself, um, secure relationships and so on. Whereas a student comes in looking to create all those things. And the context has changed. They're, the context of the student today is very different from the context that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And so the student is facing challenges that I didn't face. Right. So it's quite interesting just to hear about how they live their life and how they navigate all this complexity. I'll give you a simple example. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, 30 years ago, mm -hmm. we received five times less information than we receive today. A uh -huh. hundred years ago, yeah. an emperor would have received less information every day, every hour than we receive today. Wow. So this transformation is, is forcing the development of new skills and capacities 
-hmm. and new questions. And so I think this is interesting just to hear how students, I teach in a very participatory way. So mm -hmm. they just give me a lot of feedback every class in terms of what, how they live, how they see the world, how they live their lives. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me because of course it's something I'm necessarily separate from. Right. So what do you think has, has caused that rapid, like back then there wasn't that much information dispension, but now there's a lot of it. Uh, other than technology, what do you think, what do you think has caused that? You know, it's interesting. People have um, a kind of craving for information. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's interesting to think about why that is. Why do mm. people crave so much information? And I think part of it is that we've lost uh, the great book in the sense that in every culture, there was always some great text which explained mm -hmm. the culture to itself. So, for example, the Bible. Or in ancient Greece, it was the Iliad. Mm -hmm. uh, or in, in India, perhaps it was the uh, Mahabharata or, yeah. or some great text like that. Mm -hmm. So every culture has had some great text where everyone could go to, to get answers. Right. Right? If you read this text, the answer is in there somewhere. If you can't find it, reread the text. So there was a, a, a reference point, an anchor point for everyone. In our world today, there is no one great text. The, the only thing that we all go to is uh, Google. <laughs> That's our, our oracle of today. That's the new great text, yeah. But the, but the thing with that great text, with Google, is that any question you ask it, it comes back with 10,000 answers. Right, right. And so then you have to sift through all of that. So I think people are craving information partially because they don't have uh, one text that gives them all the answers. So they're endlessly looking at new diets, endlessly looking at new ways to become successful, mm -hmm. endlessly looking at new ways to date. Mm -hmm. it, it just never ends. Like, so, uh, you know, and every, so everyone, every day, like diet books are interesting because basically every couple of years, some new diet book comes along that everyone jumps onto. And then it changes a few years later. Mm -hmm. There's nothing people can go back to as uh, firm ground in our world. Right. It's a world of impermanence. And so that world of impermanence coupled with technology mm -hmm. is producing this uh, information explosion. Mm -hmm. uh, so why do you think that's a problem, that there's so much, uh, like, so much mass information thrown at people every single day? Well, I would say, okay, so on one hand, it's a great thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. More access. I mean, I'm very happy with it, right? I yeah. mean, everything has this two-sided... Um, uh, everything has is two-sided. So on one hand, it's uh, it's a great thing. On the other hand, I think it may be causing a lot of mental health problems because mm, that's people true. don't have the mental stamina right. to absorb that much information. If you have to put everything into question continuously, mm -hmm. that's exhausting. Right? It, it's like yeah. walking through a grocery store. The average grocery store has... 40,000 items in it. Mm -hmm. You only need about 100 to 150 items. Right, right. That means 39,900 times your mind has to say no. Wow. That's exhausting. Yeah, it is exhausting. And, that's, yeah. and that, so when you, you walk through a grocery store for an hour, you're exhausted at the end of it. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, that's happening every day with uh, all the information we're seeing, Facebook, Instagram, etc. Mm -hmm. Constantly 
going through so much information saying no, 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 no. Like that's a very exhausting process. And I, I think um, that shows itself in this generation of students where there is a tremendous increase in mental health problems. So I right. think that, that's not the only reason for the increase in mental health problems. Mm -hmm. But I think that's one reason that hasn't been explored. Right. So how, how do you think, so when you say mental stamina, what do you mean by that? Well, mental stamina means the ability to concentrate on one subject for a very long time. Okay. Uh, so that would be one thing. And then secondly would be the ability to receive a lot of information and not be overwhelmed by it, to be able to categorize it, put it in its place, mm -hmm. and, and then proceed onwards. It would be like if you were to walk into your room and your room was continuously a mess and you had to work in that room or your workplace was a continuous mess mm -hmm. and you had to work in it, it would be exhausting. Right. So in a way, the mind now has become like that messy work uh, space oh, and yeah. find ways to organize the mind has become very important mm -hmm. uh, because there's so much information coming in. People can't categorize all that information and put it in its place. It right. would be like having, a thousand files on your desk and you've got to categorize them before you can get to work. Mm -hmm. I mean, th this would be an exhausting process to do this every day. So yeah, that's yeah. What's happening internally right now in everyone's mind. Mm -hmm. And so without that skill of categorizing and filing information in places where you can easily retrieve it in your own head, you're going to, without that capacity, you're going to be exhausted all the time. So that's where I think um, that that's where I think that's by the way, I think one of the reasons why mindfulness and meditation have started to become very popular. Right, right. Yeah. This is giving people a chance to stop for a second and try to think, organize their head mm -hmm. so that they can receive all this information around them. It's been super fun learning with you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to me. Join me next week as we explore another part of the vast, mysterious lands of South Asia. I'm looking forward to exploring something new that you've never heard about next week. Talk soon.